The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. That became in itself a political fight, because as soon as they, they made moves to do it, again, Eddie Gallagher went on Fox News, spoke directly to the president and said, like, you know, they essentially have sour grapes. They lost and now they're trying to punish me anyway. And it set up this showdown between the top brass of the Navy and the president over a very, when it comes down to it, low ranking and unimportant guy. But that showdown had huge political implications, right? Because for centuries, there's been a delicate dance between the civilian rule of the United States and its control over the military. Of course, the military could take over anytime it wanted. They have the guns, but they never have. And and they've had this agreement where, hey, we stay out of politics uh, and we don't tell the president what to do. And the president stays out of of running the sort of rank and file day-to-day business of the military. Not talking strategy, but just the little stuff. And as long as we keep that agreement, basically everyone's happy. But what happened instead was that rank and file running of the day-to-day stuff had become political. And so it had set these two groups up against each other. And, And ultimately the only thing that could happen was for the Secretary of the Navy to be fired over it. That was sort of the circuit breaker to get out of this problem. I'm Bryce Clem, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, Monday, October 4th. 2021. I sat down recently with David Phillips, a New York Times correspondent and author of the new book, Alpha, Eddie Gallagher and the War for the Soul of the Navy Seals. We spoke about the saga of Eddie Gallagher, the Navy Seal acquitted of stabbing an ISIS prisoner. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 4th, the saga of Eddie Gallagher and the Navy Seals. David, thank you so much for joining me. We have a lot to get into but get us started here. Why did you write this book? So I covered uh, the Edward Gallagher court-martial trial from beginning to end, and then afterwards, the the political struggle that happened. And I felt like after that was all done, you know, I had written at least 20 news stories, and I felt like there was so much that I had encountered that was an incredible story that just wouldn't fit into the pages of the newspaper. And it was basically this. There was a timeless human story about the men who were put in a position of having to to decide what is right and what is wrong and decide that in an arena where those things are shifting all the times and sometimes getting warped. You know, so it's Huckleberry Finn, it's Hamlet, it's, you know, the timeless human experience. And I knew that that story should be told because the guys who experienced it really went through a lot and had to make some really tough choices. So let's jump into the book. 
give us a sense of who Eddie Gallagher was. What was his career in the SEALs like? So at the start of all this, before he was arrested, he was a very experienced journeyman chief in the SEALs. He had enlisted in the Navy at age 19, uh, shortly before 2001. He deployed as a medic to Iraq with a group of Marines. He then become a SEAL and deployed twice with them to Afghanistan and a few other times to the uh, Middle East, to, to Iraq and, and other places in the Middle East. And by the time he was 37 years old, he was for the first time taking command. He was put in charge of a platoon of about 20 Navy SEALs. And when he took over, he really had a great reputation, a reputation as a guy who was funny, enjoyable to be around, uh, super tough, but not very tight or too concerned with bureaucracy, a guy who had a lot of combat experience and was seen as as really reliable. And so when he took over this platoon, the men who served under him were were psyched. They thought they had scored because they'd gotten a really good leader. So before we get into some of the broader themes that the story in, in your book touches on, I think it's important to just give our listeners a general overview of and sort of refresher on what happened. I'm sure they saw it sort of passing in the headlines. But what was Alpha Platoon's mission in Iraq, Eddie's platoon? So we've got to go back to 2017. And at that time, parts of Iraq were still controlled by ISIS. And in particular, ISIS controlled the second largest city in the country, which was Mosul. The SEAL's job was to help clear ISIS out of that city. And basically, the idea was that Iraqi forces on the ground were going to do most of the work. They were going to surround the city and slowly tighten a noose around it and basically annihilate ISIS. And the United States was going to help with air support and other sort of special technological things. And so the SEALs were on the ground, shoulder to shoulder with the Iraqi forces, helping to call in airstrikes, providing overwatch with snipers and drones and um, shoulder-fired rockets. They were there to essentially help make this mission happen. And for the SEALs in Alpha Platoon, from their personal career standpoint, this was sort of, you know, like their Super Bowl of, of combat. Yeah, absolutely. For a couple different reasons. So the SEALs that were in this platoon were all in their 20s. And most of them had gotten into the Navy SEALs you know, just as the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were winding down. So they were surrounded by older guys who'd been on lots of very hairy deployments and had lots of stories of combat. But they were of a generation where that was increasingly scarce. And so the fight against ISIS was a real chance, not only to, to be in combat, but to be in something that had been in really short supply during the war on terror. And that's real combat, combat against you know, an actual enemy that was going to stand and fight and not pretend to be a civilian and, you know, the chance to to engage them on the ground. They were as scary, I think, as that sounds to a lot of, you know, people in the civilian world, because there's a good chance you could get hurt or killed. To them, it's exactly what they had signed up for, and they were excited to be able to do their part. So I was wondering if you could talk about the command structure of the platoon and Eddie's position within that. Sure. I don't know if any listeners have ever seen the movie Platoon, uh, which is about Vietnam, but this is so similar that that it became eerie. And at one point, the the men in Alpha Platoon actually watched that movie during deployment and had to turn it off because it was too uncomfortable. So basically, in any platoon, you have a officer in charge, and that officer is generally pretty junior. In this case, 
it was a lieutenant, a, a man who was in his late 20s. And in every platoon, you also have a senior enlisted person. That person's usually a good deal older and a good deal more experienced. And the idea is that the officer gets the commands from above and gives those commands to, to uh, the senior enlisted and that senior enlisted makes sure that they're carried out. Eddie Gallagher as chief of the platoon was the senior enlisted. Now, if there's a good relationship, then everything works like it's supposed to on paper. But uh, oftentimes, and this is certainly not unique to the SEALs or to Alpha Platoon, the enlisted, senior enlisted guy, whether it's a chief or, or a sergeant, can uh, take over. He can overpower a young and often naive officer. Uh, he can win the allegiance of the men, and, and he can effectively do what he wants, particularly if it's one small unit that's operating far from the eyes of the brass. And that is what SEALs in Alpha Platoon say happened with their platoon. Their, their lieutenant in charge, Jake Portier, was overwhelmed by Eddie Gallagher. Eddie Gallagher yelled at him and lambasted him so often that, that the guys quietly joked that the lieutenant had become Eddie's battered wife. And Eddie effectively uh, ran the platoon how he wanted. And, and to the extent possible, they say he did what he wanted. So they're in some ways excited to be in Mosul, but they start noticing some things going wrong with their chief, Chief Gallagher. What did they start noticing? You know, what's tough is, is Eddie Gallagher was and is a really charismatic guy. He's easy to like. And I think at first they saw that they all realized that he was a little fast and loose with the rules, but they didn't see that as a liability. They saw it as an asset. You know, here was a guy who wasn't going to be too worried about red tape. You know, he was mostly focused on killing the enemy, which is what they wanted to do too. But slowly that started to shift. And the, the first example they saw of that was something that looked like it was an asset at first. And then they realized was, was really dangerous. And that is that in this really chaotic assault against this, this city where you have thousands of troops working from all different directions and you have airstrikes going on overhead. Each one of these SEALs had to have a tracker on their body. Basically, it was a, a phone that was running an app. And that allowed the command to see them as blue dots on a map and make sure they were always in the right place where they wouldn't, for example, get accidentally fried by a, an airstrike. But Eddie didn't like that because he wanted to get closer to the action than the commanders actually would allow him to. Uh, he wanted to get right up next to where ISIS was and, and you know, hopefully get in, in close quarters firefights. And so he told his men to turn off their trackers. When he said this, they joined in right away without hesitation because they thought, great, here's a guy who's going to step around the bureaucracy and, and let us get into the fight. But what they realized slowly is that this was a huge liability. And one of the things that really brought that home was when they got to an area where they were deep into a restricted zone where they weren't supposed to be. Their trackers were turned off and one of the members of the platoon was shot. At that moment, Eddie and his officer in charge said, we're not going to call a, a helicopter to come in for a medical evacuation uh, because that would reveal where we actually are. Instead, we're going to drag and carry this wounded man out of here so that we can hide what we were doing wrong. And I think at that point, he really lost a lot of the guys and it, it just went on from there. And they realized that he seemed to be in it for himself. They thought uh, he was overwhelmingly focused on racking up his own personal kill count. They thought possibly because he wanted to brag about it later. And he didn't seem to care much about 
accomplishing any strategic goal, but also care much about the safety of the guys in the platoon. So there's a lot of details that you lay out in the book uh, that we're not going to be able to get to here just due to time constraints. But I was wondering if you could just give us an overview of the main incident that would eventually lead to his court-martial, the the alleged stabbing of an ISIS prisoner. Sure. So the first thing we need to note is that Eddie Gallagher was charged with murder, attempted murder, I believe assault, and a raft of smaller charges. And he was acquitted by a jury of all but one minor charge for appearing in a photo with the dead body of a man he was accused of killing. So I just want to put that out front. So what was he accused of? What did the men of Alpha Platoon say they saw him do uh, when they came home? They say that they saw him shoot indiscriminately at civilians with a sniper rifle, women, children, families going to get water at the river. A SEAL said that he saw Eddie Gallagher shoot an old man in the back. Another SEAL said that he saw Eddie Gallagher shoot a school-aged girl. But the one charge that that the whole trial sort of centered around was the death of an ISIS fighter who was taken captive by the platoon. There had been a firefight, and in that firefight, a Hellfire missile uh, hit a building. After that strike, uh, Iraqi soldiers brought the, what, the lone survivor that they found back to the SEALs on the edge of the battlefield. And this lone survivor was a, a wounded teenager, uh, about 17 years old. He was conscious, but in pretty bad shape. He had a small uh, wound on his leg, but appeared mostly to be in shock from, from probably just from the concussion of the blast. He was brought to Eddie Gallagher, who started doing uh, some medical procedures on him. And then three of the SEALs who were standing right there told authorities that they later saw Eddie take out his, his custom hunting knife and uh, stab the captive in the neck. A uh, short time later, the captive died. Now, important to say, Eddie Gallagher says that he didn't do this. But I'll tell you what, as part of my reporting, I sort of had access to a, a ton of stuff that I don't normally have, including a lot of his, his personal text conversations. So here's what we know about Eddie Gallagher and that stabbing. A few months before he deployed, he told one of his good friends who's a knife maker that he wanted to use his custom knife to stab someone in the skull. Then on that day, three people say they saw him stab this kid in the neck. Then a few minutes later, Eddie Gallagher took a picture with the dead body and his knife together. And then a few days after that, he texted that picture to one of his SEAL friends with the words, good story behind this, got him with my hunting knife. So from the perspective of a whodunit, it isn't exactly Sherlock Holmes. It ain't even murder, she wrote. You know, what was more interesting to me was the cultural whodunit behind this story. You know, why would the SEALs do so much to cover up and try and bury a report about a chief doing something like this? And why would a chief who came up through the SEAL teams want to do something like this and brag about it in the first place? Yeah, I think it's important to to touch on sort of the next part of the story, which is how it got in the hands of NCIS. So the platoon gets home and they try as you write in the book, they try to bring it to their officers, the people above them, and kind of handle it internally. But that doesn't go well. Right, right. In fact, they what they say is they tried immediately to 
report this the the day that it happened and they do it over and over and it only slowly dawns on them that their own comrades their the you know their own brothers are trying to cover up for a man that they see as a cold-blooded murderer uh, so the first person they go to is their the lieutenant in charge of their platoon, Jake Portier. And you know, what he says, essentially, if you believe them, is, okay, I understand. I'll take care of it. And I think they thought that that Eddie Gallagher would quietly be removed and someone else would be in charge. And maybe he'd be parked at a desk somewhere until he retired and and they would achieve their goal of getting this this guy who they thought was you know mentally unstable and dangerous out of the seals without having to to bring a lot of bad press on the teams. Well, that didn't happen. So they went up the the chain and got a similar response and thought they would have a similar outcome. He would be dealt with quietly, internally, which is how the seals like to do things. And again, after a couple of months, it dawned on them that that it was getting buried again. And at every point they they encountered people who seemed to just want to quietly make this disappear. Seals who were friends with Eddie Gallagher or uh, wanted to protect the teams and didn't want to bring this out. And I think it came down to a question of loyalty. And each of these Seals had to decide what they were being loyal to. You know, is your job to be loyal to your brother, to the man who stands next to you, the man that, that you know, you're so dedicated to that you would literally pull him out of a, a burning helicopter or is loyalty to something bigger? Is it to the organization and, and the values that it serves? Is it to the constitution and the you know rule of law that, that these guys vow to, to protect and uphold? And I think that each of these SEALs made a different decision. And, and the subtitle of this book is The War for the Soul of the Navy SEALs. And that's kind of where the war played out. You know, what are you really going to be loyal to and, and what is the best way forward? Obviously, the guys who turned him in and eventually reached out to, uh, you know, outside law enforcement in the Navy, they saw it one way, but a lot of guys saw it another way. I want to touch on something that you just sort of mentioned there, which is they were all trying to protect the teams in a way. And what was striking to me in the book is pretty much the night after the stabbing or the night of the stabbing, the, the alleged stabbing, excuse me they sort of immediately realize what the consequences would be of this getting out. And I think one of them says like, oh, could you imagine the, these photos on CNN or something? And that's in effect exactly what happened. Yeah, that's right. I think at the beginning of this, a lot of these guys, they saw this stabbing or they learned a short time later that it had happened. And they viewed it not as as like something that's just you know completely morally wrong, but as a huge tactical screw up that could endanger what they were trying to do, because they knew that if the wider military effort or uh, the civilian press got a hold of it, they were done. They'd get pulled immediately out of Mosul. They'd be benched somewhere while an investigation took place and their careers were effectively over. So at first they were outraged, not at the killing of, of this young man. You know, after all, he was an enemy fighter. And to a certain extent, even though they thought the way that he was killed was wrong, it wasn't a huge moral outrage. What they were first upset about was what they described as Eddie being really selfish. Eddie wanting to get his knife kill in, which is you know something he could brag about later without thinking about the larger consequences for everyone else. And I think it only slowly started to dawn on them as time went on that, oh yeah, there's, there's a huge moral problem here. There's 
in a way like an existential problem to the seals because if you are loyal only to the guy next to you and the guy next to you is is killing people in cold blood you know in this case a 17 year old why are the seals even there you know if the seals aren't there to to follow and uphold the law to protect and defend you know are they really any different from the folks that alpha platoon had gone to fight in mosul so let's we're fast forwarding a bit here but let's get to the trial as you mentioned earlier Eddie Gallagher was acquitted. Why don't you walk our, our listeners through, give them sort of a summary of what happened, the medic, Corey Scott's testimony, and, and just the final outcome of the trial. Yeah, so it's funny. You know, we have the rule of law. We have trial by jury. And I'm a big believer that that is the best system that we can put in place to try to reach a just outcome. And at the same time, because I, I have a lot of friends who've worked in criminal law for, for years and years, I know that a just outcome is not always the result of a, a criminal trial. And listeners, you probably won't be surprised after hearing me talk that I don't think that a, a just outcome was achieved here. And it starts with the jury selection. Eddie Gallagher was tried in a military court martial by a military panel. The jurors were all male, and nearly all of them had combat experience. So they're, they're really his peers uh, in, a, in a very narrow sense. It would be a little bit like having a police officer in a brutality case judged by a, a jury panel full of police officers. One of the jurors, in fact, was a Navy SEAL who lied on the stand saying he didn't know Eddie Gallagher, when in fact he had been over to Eddie Gallagher's house numerous times and later told other SEALs that he had donated to Eddie's defense fund. That didn't come out until after trial. And so you have this group that's sitting in judgment of him. And then a really wild court martial happened where the most experienced prosecutor who was going to run the case got pulled off at the last minute. A very young and inexperienced guy was left there. Let me let me jump in here. Let's talk about why he was pulled off the case, because this this podcast has somewhat of a legal audience just talk about what what he did there in the email tracking sort of system that he was that he implanted in an email to defense counsel because that is pretty shocking something really unusual happened right before the trial there had been a number of large and persistent leaks of confidential navy criminal investigation files to the media including me so now you put me in a position where i have to talk about something where i know more than i can actually say the uh, Navy was pretty upset about all these leaks, and so was the judge. And so Navy Criminal Investigative Service decided, we're going to figure out who's leaking. And they came up with a plan to put a little bit of software on an email, an email that would have some leakable material on it, and put it out there and see where uh, the leak was coming from. Now, this type of software is the stuff that's used by companies all the time to see if you're opening and reading their emails about promotions for discounts and sales and stuff like that. It's not high tech, but it does become kind of dangerous when you put it into the realm of attorney-client privilege. So anyway, they decide they're going to attach this software to an email sent by the lead prosecutor, a guy named Commander Chris Chaplack. Chaplack is uneasy about it and goes to the judge and asks him, hey, they're planning on doing this. Are you okay with it? The judge, uh, according to Chaplack, says, yeah, that's fine. And they send it out. Well, the defense team 
immediately spots this tracking software. Now, whether it was uh, the the lead uh, defense attorney, a guy named Tim Parlatore, or uh, another sort of marginal attorney named Brian Ferguson is unclear, but they figure it out and they immediately go bananas about it and make a huge fuss saying they're being spied on and who knows what types, types of stuff are compromised. By the way, it's worth noting that that the stuff that got sent out did get leaked. So whatever was leaking was leaking from the defense side, at least in that case. So anyway, the judge who feels he has to do something, uh, he doesn't find that the chief prosecutor did anything wrong, but he does find that the prosecution team needs to be sanctioned for this. And so he does a number of things. And one of them is he removes the lead prosecutor about two weeks before trial. That leaves it to to a man who had never tried a murder trial, certainly not a really complex trial like this. And in addition to that, I think four or five days before trial, his father died unexpectedly. So so that created another handicap for him. He was trying to deal with his father's death and and the funeral details while also trying to finalize this this really complex, high profile trial. Let's get back to the actual trial. What happens? Yeah, so this is the type of trial for, for <laughs> all the lawyers. My wife is a, is a, a, well, was a defense attorney. Now she's a judge. But anyway, this is the type of trial that that defense attorneys like her, people that spend a lot of time in, in the criminal court, when there are cocktail parties, everyone expects that trials happen like this. And in fact, they never actually happen like this, but this one did. So they're going through the trial and they're working their way through various seals who witness things. And it's going about how you would expect the prosecution asks them what they saw. And then the defense attorney steps up and, and undermines their credibility or questions their memory, things like that. And then it gets to the medic, Corey Scott. And he's the star witness here because he was both the one who I witnessed the stabbing most closely. And he's also a medic. So he's able to talk a little bit about you know, the seriousness of the wound and, and what was the state of the, the victim afterwards. And he gets up there and immediately, as the prosecution's witness starts fighting the prosecutor, can't remember anything, is equivocating about simple questions that he had answered numerous times before in, in interviews with prosecutors. And when he gets to the key part where he says, yes, I saw Eddie Gallagher stab this fighter to death with a knife, he stops and he says, well, I saw him stab him, but it was only once. And I don't remember seeing any blood. I don't think it was that serious. In fact, the uh, victim continued to be stable and live afterwards and would have indefinitely, except for, and here's where it got really dramatic, that I killed him. Now, Corey Scott could say that. He could claim responsibility for this murder because he had worked out a very comprehensive immunity deal beforehand that protected him in almost every way. And so he was able to take the rap, say Eddie Gallagher didn't kill him, I did, and walk away. And that pretty much ended the whole trial. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022 and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of, called people by name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers, and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report, and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there, and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay, and I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft doxing, and phishing scams, Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. 
now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. And before we, before we get into the Trump White House's and, and Fox News's relationship with the case, I just want to go through sort of Gallagher's legal team and the arguments that they were making. Their sort of rough theory of the case, as I understand it, is that the SEALs who were testifying and, and reported Eddie were disgruntled employees, in effect. Eddie had called them cowards because they, in this is in Gallagher's defense team's words, because they didn't want to go out on these on these missions that you that you describe in the book. And Eddie called them cowards, so they started making up little stories here and there. Oh, he took my power bar. Oh, he took energy drinks. And in the defense team's, you know, logic, this snowballed into them essentially making up the murder. Would you say that's an accurate characterization of their arguments? Yeah, they, they started small with little gripes they hoped would get him removed from command, never anticipating there might be a criminal investigation. And when those gripes had no effect, uh, his attorney said they made up more serious gripes and more serious gripes and more serious gripes until they got to murder. And they unwittingly then triggered a criminal investigation that landed the whole thing in a criminal court, which was not what any of them ever intended. But by that point, there was no way to put the genie back in the bottle. I think that's the best way to say it. Now, it's important to say that there was about 20 men serving in this platoon. And I'd have to give you an exact. So this is an estimate count. About six testified about crimes they saw Eddie Gallagher commit. Two testified for the defense and said they saw nothing. But that leaves a whole lot of guys that never said anything, including the officer in charge. So there's all sorts of people who just said nothing. They not only said, hey, I saw Eddie Gallagher commit murder. They didn't say that, but they also didn't step in and defend Eddie and say, look, these guys are bad seals. They were always bad seals. They were making this up to cover their own poor performance. So I've got to say the the evidence for Eddie Gallagher murdering a captive, which I laid out, the photos, the texts, the eyewitnesses, it's not perfect. There's no video. There's no coroner who was there to, to study the body and they never found the body. But there's a heck of a lot more evidence of that scenario than there is of a scenario of disgruntled seals. All right, let's move to the media perception and interaction with the trial in a lot of ways, and particularly Pete Hegseth at Fox News. How did the Gallagher family really promote Eddie's story and get it out in conservative media? Uh, Well, I mean, to a certain extent, Eddie was lightning in a bottle for conservative media. He was, he fit every single one of their hot button issues. Here's this strong, white, blue-eyed, hetero, traditional values, Christian male who was serving in the military, who killed an Islamic ISIS fanatic on the battlefield. 
And after that happened, he was investigated and was being taken down by a bunch of lawyers, bureaucrats, and the deep state. And as icing on the cake, the witnesses in the case were a bunch of whiny millennials who couldn't put up with his standards. It was like every grievance that that had been popping around Fox News for years in one beautiful package. Because the, the Russia investigation, right, is going on at this time. Right. And so like the same things that are happening to the president are now happening to this seal. And so it wasn't that hard for, for uh, Eddie Gallagher's wife, his brother, to go on and tell this story and have it catch fire. And it was, it was fascinating for me as a journalist to watch this because, of course, Pete Hegseth and a lot of folks on, on cable news of all stripes, they, they dress up in journalism clothes. They sit behind a journalism desk. They talk about news events, but they don't actually practice journalism. You know, they're not actually trying to report facts to look at alternative perspectives. And so they would just have Eddie Gallagher's family on and let them talk. And it became this almost like this infomercial directed oftentimes overtly at President Trump uh, to pardon Eddie Gallagher. And that really continued through this this whole thing. Now, I mean, there was lots of, of actual journalists doing actual journalism, but I suspect a lot of the narrative was shaped by those cable news, news folks. And they were successful in their attempt to reach the president. How do you want to reach President Trump? You go on his favorite show, Fox and Friends in the morning, right? And you you plead your case. He would often like he would often tweet like directly afterwards. You could almost tell that that he had been watching. He would tweet in support of of Eddie, maybe after his wife or his lawyer had just been on. Yeah, I mean it's really it's really astounding. And then Trump calls the the Secretary of the Navy, and I just want to let our listeners know. I mean, this book is revealing not only about the seals and you know the war in Iraq against ISIS. I mean, but it also really speaks to how the Trump White House functions. So Trump watches these hits on Fox News, and then he calls the Navy secretary. What does he tell him? Yeah, and just says like, hey, essentially like, get Eddie Eddie Gallagher out of jail, which ultimately happened. Eddie was in pre-trial confinement in the brig before he went to trial, and, and at the president's behest, he was let out. But in addition, the president seemed to be prepared uh, to pardon Eddie Gallagher even before he went to trial. You know, don't even let the system work. Don't even have a a fair hearing of the facts. Just, uh, you know, let him off. And top military leaders prevailed on him to to keep that from happening. But I do wonder, this is something that, of course, we can never answer. But if Eddie Gallagher had been convicted of murder, would the president have stepped in? What we do know is that when he was acquitted, very soon after the president tweeted his congratulations, so would it have been something similar if he had been convicted? Would he have tweeted, you know, I plan to, to pardon this great hero, you know, good work? We, we don't know. But certainly he was involved in a way that is almost unheard of in presidential politics. And I want to move for a second to just how this was being received in the military community, particularly among the SEAL officer corps at the time. So Eddie is acquitted and then the SEAL officer corps is like, okay, we can still handle this guy internally. But at the same time, he essentially has the ear of the president more so than any really high-ranking admiral. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, that's true. So and there's a really unusual part of military law where the, the 
commanding officer who who's the authority overseeing the court martial can't be seen to have any undue influence in any way. And that has been interpreted in increasingly strict ways to the point where anyone in that chain of command really can't say anything about about the case or let their staff say anything about the case. So when Eddie Gallagher's family and his supporters were constantly going on conservative media telling the story, the Navy essentially was never able to present their own perspective to say, hey, this is a bad dude. There's this many eyewitnesses. Uh, there's evidence of drug use. Uh, this guy had been in trouble many times before. They weren't able to say any of that stuff. And so because Gallagher's family and, and maybe to a certain extent his legal team were trying this case in the press, it was very one-sided. And the same thing happened once the trial was over. The leadership of the Navy decided, hey, we have to send a message. We know that Eddie Gallagher is not a good guy. We want to let the SEAL teams know that his type of behavior is not acceptable. So let's just kick him out of the Navy, fire him essentially. And they had lots of grounds for firing him, things that never were brought as um, criminal charges, but were misconduct. Things like stealing and drug use and getting one of his junior SEALs to, to buy him drugs, things like that. But what they realized is that became in itself a political fight. Because as soon as they they made moves to do it, again, Eddie Gallagher went on Fox News, spoke directly to the president and said, like, you know, they essentially have sour grapes. They lost and now they're trying to punish me anyway. And it set up this showdown between the top brass of the Navy and the president over a very, when it comes down to it, low ranking and unimportant guy. But that showdown had huge political implications, right? Because for centuries, there's been a delicate dance between the civilian rule of the United States and its control over the military. Of course, the military could take over anytime it wanted. They have the guns, but they never have. And, and they've had this agreement where, hey, we stay out of politics uh, and we don't tell the president what to do. And the president stays out of, of running the sort of rank and file day-to-day -day business of the military. I'm not talking strategy, but just the little stuff. And as long as we keep that agreement, basically everyone, everyone's happy. But what happened instead was that rank and file running of the day-to-day -day stuff had become political. And so it had set these two groups up against each other. And, and ultimately, the only thing that could happen was for the Secretary of the Navy to be fired over it. That was sort of the circuit breaker to get out of this problem. So let's let's go back to the SEAL teams for a second and talk about how this story was being received in the SEAL community, both active duty and veterans. What happened to the guys that spoke up against Eddie? So I should say that, that the SEALs are just like everyone else in America. They are increasingly polarized. Their choices of where they get information are increasingly polarized. Uh, and so some of them thought that Eddie Gallagher was a dirtbag, and some of them thought that he was an American hero. And a lot of that depended not on your knowledge of the facts, but but your sources of information. So there was a, a lot of people who thought that the guys who turned Eddie in, and I should be clear, whether Eddie did it or not was not that important to them. But they thought the guys that turned him in were traitors. They had gone against the, the code of silence. They, they vowed to stand by their brothers. 
And there were other people who had seen their own problems in the seals that were said to themselves, you know, good, you know, the only things that's going to take care of our cultural problems is having some transparency, you know, maybe sunlight will do what various internal investigations had not. I don't know how that split falls, how many people are in one camp or, or in another. What happened to the guys who were in the platoon? Some of them left and they left in large part because they were so disillusioned by what they saw Eddie Gallagher do and the response they saw from the SEAL leadership. And they just decided, I don't want to be part of this anymore. And that includes some very high performing folks who, who probably, if you met them, you would want them to still be in uniform. Uh, but there are other guys who decided to stick it out, who decided that, look, the only way to get anywhere with this is to stay in the SEALs, rise up through the SEALs. And even though we lost at trial, you know, that's one battle in a fight that could continue for years. And so those guys are still there and, and actively telling the story of, of what they say really happened in that deployment and hoping that they will eventually, you know, have some effect on the culture. So I want to move for a second to, to place this story in the broader history and popular memory of the Navy SEALs. I mean, before the bin Laden raid, they weren't known as much. I mean, right after the bin Laden raid, a bunch of books come out about the SEALs sort of in a, you know, war novels, a bunch of movies come out. Is this in some way just sort of the pendulum swinging back this story and exposing the broader culture? The SEALs, I think just because they are such a small force and they're part of the Navy and not part of the Army or, or the Marines, they really came into the war on terror with a really sort of clean reputation, which they then filled in this blank slate with, with various heroics that we're the people who rescue hostages from ships where the people who shot Osama bin Laden while not killing any other civilians in the house, just like, you know, they were what we wanted to believe American warriors could be, you know, compassionate, super professional, and not carrying any of the baggage of past wars. And what's funny is what I found out is that, and I didn't even have to look that deep, but in Vietnam, that they just repeatedly were doing some really, really sketchy stuff, including, you know, killing large numbers of civilians with knives. And because they were a small group, none of that reputation stuck to them. So the only pop culture uh, seal that came out of Vietnam was, and this will probably surprise a lot of people, was Magnum P.I. And Magnum P.I. was not like a, a troubled war veteran. He wasn't Rambo or something like that. He was a a kind of cool, smart guy who wore an Aloha shirt and drove a Ferrari. So when you combine that innocence with this, you know, resume of, of really amazing feats like killing bin Laden and rescuing hostages, I mean, we were in love with them. And I'll tell you like how in love with them I think we still are. If you if you look up my book on Amazon, I guarantee you the first thing to pop up will not be my book. It'll be like four or five Navy SEAL romance novels that have almost the exactly the same name. Like we are literally in love with and lusting after the Navy SEALs. And what that reputation did is, you know, like so many organizations that have, you know, a high level of esteem and a low level of transparency, 
it allowed them to just get away with a lot and, and no one questioned it. So I want to talk about what Eddie Gallagher is doing now that he's out of the seals and retired. He gives a lot of interviews and, you know, I think he had a five and a half hour podcast interview about the whole thing. When you watch him now, what do you see? You know, it's interesting. He never spoke to me for my book, but I asked. And part of me was glad that he didn't because I've studied him and and the words that he says when he knows certain people are watching versus the words he says when other people are watching. And I just don't find him to be a reliable narrator. And I'm not even sure that he could be a reliable narrator if he was only talking to himself. I hear him tell war stories that never happened. And of course, when you ask if somebody is guilty of murder, they're only ever going to say one thing, right? They're going to say, no, I didn't do it. So that's not a huge surprise. But what I heard repeatedly in uh, these long podcast interviews he's done, and he's done a number, is that he'll lie about things that that don't even necessarily matter. I'll give you an example. Uh, at one point when he's trying to describe the savagery of the enemy in Mosul, you know, how nasty ISIS is. He talks about walking through this park in a, a, a blown up part of the city and finding the heads of uh, civilians stuck on spikes in, a, in what was formerly a playground. And when I heard that, I said, wow, that's incredible. And I didn't doubt it at first. And I went back to the, the SEALs in his platoon that had been right there with him shoulder to shoulder and said, did that ever happen? And they just sort of shook their head and laughed and said, no, you know, not even close. And I asked, well, why would he say it happened then? Like maybe he heard it from someone else and it was just repeating it that way. And they just shook their heads and said, no. And I think at this point, they're so used to that idea that Eddie Gallagher will, will invent stuff to, to make his own experience seem more valid that they just shake their head at it. So, so what is he doing now? Eddie Gallagher was, was acquitted. He was honorably discharged from the Navy. Uh, so he is just a hair over 40 years old at this point and uh, retired. I wouldn't be surprised if he's also pulling some VA disability. So he's got a small income there, but he also does a lot of, he's dabbling in being like a, a warrior online influencer. So he's got you know, various social media accounts and he sells products on them. He, so for example, he'll, he sells his own customized assault rifles and customized brass knuckles and flags with, with pirate skulls on them and all this stuff that, that sort of is a wink in the nod to what other SEALs said he did without ever admitting that he actually did it. What's interesting though, is it is in these podcasts, his story has changed a little in ways that I find remarkable. So his initial story when he was arrested is none of this is true. People are saying, I stabbed someone. I never did it. And then his story changed. The story he's telling now is, okay, everything they're saying is true to a point. Yes, I did work on this captive when he came in. Yes, I did pull out my knife and I did poke the captive. But that's where he stops. He just says, I only stabbed him a little bit or, or poked him. I don't know if he even admits to, to, to breaking the skin, but I did it to make sure he was dead. And he was. So it wasn't a murder. It was just me checking that he was already dead. It seems to me, and of course, there's no way to know if this is true. Uh, it seems to me that Eddie is almost desperate to 
take credit for this thing that he appeared to be so proud of, and yet because of the criminal charges had to deny. And so he's trying to do this dance where he can dog whistle that he did it without actually doing it. You know, that's my opinion, but, but he doesn't seem to let it go. He's never apologized to anyone about any of this stuff. In fact, he continues to badmouth uh, the men who served under him, calling them schoolyard names. He has definitely not moved on. That's for sure. I think he even he even released a video of all of his accusers basically saying where they were now, which is pretty shocking for the special operator community. Is that right? Yeah. And I don't know how much of it is overreaction, but the special operators, they definitely do not like to talk about each other's names, put each other's faces on the internet, talk about what units they're in or what they do. It's just seen as like a professional courtesy that you stay silent you use operational security and you just try to remain anonymous. So it's it's one of his ways of really getting at them to put out their names, say where they are, maybe call them some names. So anyway, he does the same for me. He he occasionally he'll he'll insult me and talk about what a lousy journalist I am. So how has the book been received as far as you know within the the SEAL and military community and just in terms of the aside from the book, but in terms of the broader story. What sort of broader lessons has the military tried to take away from this? I think the book's been received pretty well because it's not a story that really takes the SEAL teams to task for being morally corrupt. You know, I don't use Eddie Gallagher as an example of all SEALs and what's wrong with them. I tell the story of one SEAL who'd gone off the rails and, you know, a far larger number of SEALs who tried to save the organization, tried to do what was right. And to, so to a certain extent, I think that the SEAL teams and, and the military community in general can embrace that because anyone who served in the military knows that it's, it's like any other large organization. Some of the people you work with are great and some of them are just complete garbage. And you know, you're going to have to work and do all sorts of things to try and sort out the two and, and, and do the best you can. I think they appreciate that. In terms of what are like people in the SEALs actively reading this and trying to look at it for lessons learned, I don't know, because of course they wouldn't tell me, right? Because they're Navy SEALs. They don't, they don't talk to the press. Uh, so I, I think that that's an open question. You know, will they move on? In ways, the military is always focused on, on what's going to happen tomorrow rather than what happened yesterday. And so it'd be very easy for them to not do anything to look at lessons learned. Uh, but maybe they will. And I think time will tell. The book's only been out at this point for a month. It probably is still spreading through the organization at this point. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, I'm happy to be on. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please share the Lawfare Podcast and give us a five-star review on iTunes. Go to thelawfarestore.com for brand new Lawfare pens, lanyards, t-shirts, and socks. The podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer is Hamza Shetu of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.